So welcome to another episode of the Friday Film Club. And my guest this week is someone I have been desperate to find a reason to speak to on air for the past 11 years, uh, which, believe it or not, is how long it's been since we last spoke. Uh, it's a well, little I was twice. trying to remember the last time I saw you. Yeah, that was yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, it's it's too long, too long. But uh, for, for anyone that, that feels like they're intruding on a, a kind of inside conversation here, um, I feel like I should give some background. So you were kind enough to put me up uh, for a few days when I stayed in Seattle way back in 2011. And do you know what, actually, I'm going to show you here. No one can see this because it's a podcast, but you can see this mug, right? I got this. <gasps> I got this whilst at Pike Place Market in Starbucks. Oh, how funny. It's still, it's still my favourite mug. Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I still use it. Favourite mug. I love it. Um, so how is life in Seattle? You know, it's good. We're We're coming to the end of the current stage of the the COVID restrictions. So Saturday, we lift all of our mandates and it's equal parts terrifying and exciting, but I'm I'm ready, you know, like I, I we did what we had to do. I'm ready to see what happens now. Yeah, at some point you've got to rip the plaster off, right? Pretty much. And mm. um, so tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Uh, well, my name's Alyssa, Alyssa Royce, and I actually, I run a small gym, which I'm sure seems utterly unrelated to film, um, but I run a small gym in Seattle that we had some surprising notoriety when we parted ways with CrossFit and caused a bit of a um, a stir, we will call it politely. So that's mostly what I do now, but I actually come from a background of screenwriting and film, and I'm, I'm trained as both a screenwriter and, and an actress, though I... I say that I rarely use it. I think the truth is I use it all the time. It just doesn't wind up on the silver screen. <laughs> so, And yeah, tell me about the whole gym thing, because that, that when, when I realized that you did that, that, that was a bit of a pivot because you were, you, you were doing nothing related to that when, when we first met. No, I, I was doing sex education when I met you, right? Yes. Yes, you were. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, you know, it's funny. I think that, um, Coaching in a gym and owning a gym is is almost not different at all from sex education. It's it's it was a surprising pivot to me as well. Um, oh gosh, sorry about that. And of course, had to do with uh, meeting a guy who was starting a gym and who is now my husband. But you know, it makes sense. I've always been about empowering people and helping them find their own strength and sort of love for self and power and people's uniqueness. And I absolutely love it in the gym world. Mm. And so tell me, because in the UK, uh, we, we're not that familiar with CrossFit. So, um, and I, I've seen a lot of updates from you over the past few years about CrossFit. Right. So I explain, what's the drama there? Well, you know, the short version is, you know, CrossFit is, and actually I've never said this part out loud. So if any of your, your listeners feel like playing with it, Cross, CrossFit is essentially a marketing, it's a mar the marketing of a brand. And so it's a brand that people paid not very much a year in order to sort of attach themselves to the brand. The brand has, it turns out, absolutely no support in terms of operations or functionality or what it means to be a CrossFit gym, which I have recently learned and I'm getting ready to write about, um, makes it legally speaking a quote, naked trademark, which is not legal um, from a consumer protection standpoint. But CrossFit basically was a fitness methodology that I still believe in to a large degree that exploded in the United States and to some extent worldwide. And we were a CrossFit gym for just shy of 10 years until I became really frustrated with the fact that the brand has no standards. So it means absolutely nothing. So somebody could go to a truly terrible CrossFit gym in whatever Paducah and then assume that that's what all CrossFit gyms are like. And that would negatively impact me hmm. as a gym owner. And so I was sort of getting frustrated about that. And then when the 
COVID pandemic hit and the racial justice awakenings in the United States, especially around George Floyd, happened, the founder of CrossFit started making some really, really, really terrible social media posts. And basically, I called him out and CrossFit exploded. Um, and that was, honestly, it was really rough. I didn't expect all that to happen. Hmm. Thousands of gyms left. It was just complete chaos. I was getting death threats. Like the guy ended up selling the company and getting bought out by someone else. And it was just really, it was unexpected, but I think absolutely necessary. And I think a pretty good indicator of, of why businesses need to be paying attention to what they stand for, because we're thankfully finally in a time when people are standing up for what they value. Um, and it's going to be really interesting. So that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think we need to we need to touch on that a bit more, because I think in the UK, we think we're quite politically divided. It hasn't got a, a patch on what things are like in the US. So I think, dude, yeah, yeah no, it really. And I, I think it's long overdue. And you hear all, like people saying, you know, I stay out of politics or brand should stay out of politics or heaven forbid business should stay out of politics, which would be great if we could get business out of campaign finance, for instance, hmm. I would fully support that. But the truth is everything's political and choosing not to take a stand is usually like choosing to support the status quo. And the status quo is really harmful to people who don't have, well, essentially aren't well accessed white men in this country. Um, so it's really, it's, it's everywhere and it's exhausting, but it's also exhilarating because I feel like social change might actually happen. Yeah, and um, we'll, let, we'll definitely come back to that because I have a lot of <laughs> questions um, that we probably won't be able to cover in this podcast, but we'll certainly give mm -mm. it a go. But let's talk about film, shall we? Oh, I love film. <laughs> Good, um, it, it was handy. Um, <laughs> it was my so, first love. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive straight in. Um, okay, as always, what is your favorite film of all time? You know I would hate this question, right? Because my favorite <laughs> film is usually whichever one I'm watching. But the truth is, for as long as I can remember, if I had to pick one desert island film, it would be Paper Moon. Nice. I've not seen Paper Moon. Oh, oh. It's, I mean, it's old. It's a, it's a movie from my childhood that was made to be, like, to seem like an old-timey black and white movie. Mm. And I'm, for those who don't know, I'm 52. So my childhood was the 1970s. But it's Ryan and Tatum O'Neill. And they're the sort of father-daughter adventure and he's a con man and she's this precocious outspoken little kid who I always related to who was basically just always calling him on his own shit and trying to find her own way and it's just it's an absolutely delicious film yeah so I think it's is it is it Tatum O'Neill um uh -huh. I, I remember seeing in Love Story and I kind of put me off I, I, I don't think it wasn't really Maybe I just didn't see it at the right time, but it, it, it sort of put me off anything that had Tatum O'Neill in. Um, well, she was about eight years old when this movie was made, maybe <laughs> right. nine. So it's really, it's really wonderful. And it's, it's a really simple film. Well, I'll, I'll often say that I like, I like films that are huge in scope and large in scale. Hmm. I mean, other way around, huge in scope, small in scale. And so it doesn't cover a whole lot of physical territory or time territory or a whole lot of adventures, but it covers all of the big themes that matter. I love it. It's my, it's my favorite film. I, I guess it's not surprising, it ha, you know, having come from a screenwriting background, that you're more about the narrative and the character than you are about big blockbusters, right? 100%. Yeah. I'm all about the narrative and the character. So I'm, I'm starting to get a picture of what might come next, um, but what is your least favorite film? There are just as many of those. Um, so <laughs> let me tell you films that I walked out of halfway through. Go on. I walked out of The English Patient. 
what a fucking bloated piece of shit. Sorry, I don't know if I can say that. Yeah, go um, for it. Oh, I hated that. I walked out of heat. I, that was just completely out of control. Yeah. I didn't walk out of the dark night because I was there actually to literally review it and I wanted to walk out of it, but I thought it was just bloated, self-indulgent, <laughs> masturbatory, like juvenile <laughs> fantasy crap. I would have walked out of Avatar, but I was way too high. So I couldn't have <laughs> physically walked out, but if I could have, I would have walked out of that. So yeah, I don't like films that are just... You know, they're like that guy rolling up with 16 chains in the fancy car who can't carry on a conversation. If it's a mm. film like that, I don't like it. Surely watching Avatar when you're high is the best time to watch Avatar, isn't it? I, I can't imagine watching it not high. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be terrible. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure um, it was legal in Seattle then, but if not, you know, here we are. True confessions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing your thoughts on the sequels are, are, are fairly negative. Well, sequels to those films or sequels in general? The, the the pending Avatar sequels. I think we've got five of them on the way, right? <laughs> yeah, there's like five uh, of them coming. Five? Yeah, yeah. No, oh, yeah, no. I, I sincerely doubt I will see those unless there's a blizzard and I'm really stoned for five days. Yeah. Yeah. No. What, so how has your, your viewing kind of changed from sort of the pandemic and obviously with, with services like Disney+, Plus, which their launch couldn't have been any better times having no. come just with the Ridiculous. pandemic. Are you finding that you're, you're binging more stuff that you maybe wouldn't have seen uh, had you had to go to the cinema to pay to see it? You know, it's really, this is sad to say, because I love that, you know, I, I really value the technical aspects of film. And I'm one of those people who will point out the work of an editor and a Foley artist and like, like this, it matters tremendously. Mm. And so it's really surprising for me to say I have almost no interest in ever going back to a movie theater again, <laughs> which I know breaks the heart. I have friends who are filmmakers and it just breaks their hearts, but it just, it's physically uncomfortable. Like, you know, I like a long movie and I don't want to sit in a movie theater chair for two hours, but we do have, we had right before the pandemic, we bought what I thought was a ridiculously large television and we definitely used the hell out of it. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I think we've, we've got as, as probably as big a television as we can get for our wall but i would love a bigger one uh, i want to i want to go 60 plus inches but I, I, I we just don't have the space well you've been to our house we have the space so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we definitely yeah. went we went real big um, yeah. I, but you know the thing that i would say was has changed and i'm actually sort of grateful for this is i i think that i've watched stuff that i wouldn't watch otherwise that i would just dismiss mm. right so like tiger king for instance prior to the pandemic I can't imagine the universe in which I would have watched Tiger King. Mm. And I'm really glad I did. Not because I think it was good. I think it was in many ways garbage. But I think that it, it reminded me of the role that, that film plays in the zeitgeist. Right. And that having these shared collective experiences and understanding these touch points of what other people are referring to is actually incredibly powerful. And that's what the role, the role of storytelling and the role of theater and the role of art has always been that. But as we go about our worlds in, you know, like increasingly isolated ways, I think that we forget that we have and need that shared language. And the media we consume shapes us as a people. And, you know, in turn, it all just sort of feeds on itself. And so I'm really grateful. I think I have a tendency to be snotty in some ways about movies, although I have plenty of guilty pleasures. So I'm really grateful to, to the pandemic for that, for reminding me of that that role. Yeah, and what what I think is probably one of the real positives 
from the pandemic in, in terms of you know consumer habits is I think that there's been a real surge in popularity for foreign language film and TV and it is thanks to services like Netflix because given the choice and and in a culture where we had to be a lot pickier go to the cinema pick something out and 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 you know that was it until next weekend uh, there wasn't really a space for non-English speaking films Um, people wanted to they wanted to play it safe and go with what they thought they'd like Um, whereas streaming services nowadays they give you that choice and you can sit there and binge stuff and three years ago there wouldn't have been a space for squid games or for parasite exactly or you know and and they're amazing um it's an amazing show squid games and parasite i think is universally considered one of the best films in that's one of the best films ever made that's another one right it's like huge in scope and tiny in scale and i just Mm. oh it's a it's a perfect film and you're absolutely right. And I think part of it, because so many productions were shut down in the beginning of the pandemic, studios were forced to release things that they might not have released otherwise. And, and that includes, you know, grabbing stuff from other countries and other producers. And it was one of the best things that ever could have happened to media, for sure. Absolutely. And it's, the, it's I think, where you had this, there was suddenly uh, not just an appetite, but there was, there was a limitation in big productions, purely because, you know, you couldn't have too many people in a room doing stuff at once which probably paved the way for a lot of smaller independent films to get funded firstly to get made and then subsequently to get seen in a less crowded market right it's it's fabulous and i think it also from the accessibility of just consuming media you know like my dad's 90 years old and although he's super agile and strong he's still 90 he is not interested in going to a movie theater and now to have all of these like access to mainstream movies and you know, I bitch sometimes about paying for, you know, I pay for Disney and for Netflix and for, I pay for all of it. I have all the channels and I would still very happily pay 30 bucks for any first release movie to just come to my living room and make me not have to go to a movie theater because then, you know, my dad can watch it with us. It's, it's, yeah, please let's keep that. And um, a quick, quick verdict from you on this because HBO Max, I think has just launched in the UK, was just about to, uh, is it worth the money? Wait, is which? HBO Max. Oh, dude. Have you got HBO Max? Oh, yeah. No, of course I have HBO Max. Yeah, I know. I just reset it up for my dad so he could watch um, Somebody Somewhere, which is one of the most perfect television shows I've ever seen. But there's also Insecure on HBO Max. There's The Righteous Gemstones, which is, oh, my God, it's fabulous. So, uh, yeah, I would almost say if you could only have one, have that one. But I can't imagine a life Mm. with only one. Yeah, I've got to admit, we, we've invested in a lot of streaming services over the last couple of years, as I'm sure a lot of people have. Uh, oh. But let, let's let's move on, because uh, this is always an interesting one uh, for people to answer. Which film or TV character do you most relate to? Oh, my goodness. Do I most relate to? I don't know. Can we come back to that one? We can. Um, we can indeed. We, we may need to come to, to this next one as well, but I'll try it out for you. If your life was a movie, mm-hmm. who would play you? Oh, Francis McDormand, for sure. Great choice. You can, yeah, you can see that though, right? Like, I, I can. Yeah, there's, there's an odd resemblance there. There's like, in, in a good way, you've got, the kind of, yeah. you've got the fierceness in your eyes that Francis McDormand has without doubt. Yes. And I don't, and I, I don't, you know, I, I gave up trying to be cutesy and fluffy. There was this great, um, this great moment. We were watching 
shoot, what's the one that just came out? Uh, Nomadland. Mm. And my husband and I were lying in bed watching it because I love this world where we can do that. And she came on the screen and she's just wearing like old overalls and just sort of this whatever natural landscape behind her. And my husband just said, she's so cute. And I thought to myself, oh, thank God. <laughs> but I think, yeah, she's, I've, I've always loved her because she seems, she seems genuinely committed to the craft and not committed to her being known as Frances, right? So it's not, she never plays herself per se. She doesn't give a fuck if people think she's sexy or cute or whatever. She just like, you know, she's she's an actor's actor. She's a writer's actor, you know, she's she's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can you can tell that she's very much about really character um, or I was going to say character driven stories, but really just strong characters because she works a lot with the Coen brothers who are kind of all about that. And my my first experience of Frances McDormand was Almost Famous, which is still probably my favorite film. I love and that movie. Frances yeah. McDormand. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And Frances McDormand is just an absolute beast of an actress in that film. She's and so good. She's and not it's even such a in departure it pull for her. Yeah, it's, just, yeah. it's like it's not, she's not necessarily the quirky, funky, you know, social misfit in that. It's a great, uh, it's a great film. And it's a great role for her. Mm. And while while you ponder the uh, the, the third question a bit more uh, I want to I want to go back because uh, I said I want to talk about America a little bit because I'm fascinated with with the country and there's just like there's just there's so much shit that's happened in in the country for the last couple of years you know you've got so much with uh, obviously the election and the the I want to I want to call it a coup it wasn't a coup it was just it was I don't know it was, it was an attempted it was, coup it was it was yeah. and and then obviously the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and everything and just absolute turmoil that, that seems to be happening politically in America. First of all, just generally, yeah. what's your thoughts on that? And secondly, how do you think that's shaping the sort of the films that's being made and the, the, the kind of cultural landscape and how people are and what people are, are, are watching? I think, I mean, it, it's really, it's truly hard to overstate how pervasive the feeling of unease is. Like it's, it's truly in every, everything. I think we're really aware of it. And when it was first happening, when I, you know, when Donald Trump was first running, I was one of those people who said, who was not, I wasn't worried at all because there was no way that the Republican party was even going to let him be the nominee, much less win. And then when he was, was the nominee, I was excited because I was like, there's no way he can win. So, <laughs> you know, so there you go. We just got our first female president. Mm. And I wasn't, you know, I, I was never Hillary Clinton's biggest fan, but I, had zero reservations about voting for her because the option, you know, whatever. And, and I think that what ha what's happened is it's brought up, and this is, I'm going to try and work this back to film, but there's this, you know, thematically cinema has typically been a man's world. So from the, from the beginning, everything's, you know, every women are seen through the male gaze, black people are seen through the white male gaze, you know, it's like everything is comes from this perspective. And so there's been this comfort level for mediocre white, white men, knowing that they could just run the world no matter what, because the world was made for them. And suddenly it's not. Suddenly people are, well, not suddenly, people have been fighting up against it forever, but like it, you know, we feel like we're getting some traction now. And I think there's this just massive insecurity of what next. You had all the all the Me Too stuff with Harvey Weinstein and, and then everybody mm -hmm. else, and we're all watching all of our hero, heroes, you know, turn out to be rapists. We're watching all this stuff happen. It is pervasive. Like you can feel mm -hmm. it everywhere as far everybody I know feels like we're walking on eggshells and sort of watching things fall apart and wondering what will get rebuilt and I think that it's 
it's manifesting what I see anyway, the, the media that I'm consuming, I'm much more drawn to escapism than I used to be. Um, and fortunately there's some amazing escapism to be had. Like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is I think one of the absolutely best things that has <laughs> ever been produced. It is nothing but escapism um, with great substance and amazing action. And, you know, it's well-written, it's well-produced, but it's still escapism. You know, Ted Lasso is, is sort of, I, I think he, he's a, a social cosmic band-aid for the broken male ego. And I don't think that Ted Lasso could have happened in this way any other time but right now. Because I think, especially in America, you've got a bunch of really terrified, mediocre white men um, who have been told that they have to be strong, but they're afraid because the world's changing around them. And they have feelings, but they don't know how to talk about their feelings. And in comes Ted Lasso. And he never could have happened in a society where men felt safe. And, oh, what a gift. But don't don't you think it's there's this weird contradiction in that um, certainly culturally, there's this real appetite for better representation and diversity on screen. Mm-hmm. And really, um, and those, and those, those, a wider spectrum of, of perspectives on screen than we've ever had before. And yet right. the only person that seemed to be able to beat or be electable over Donald Trump for a second term was an older, whiter guy. Yes. Yeah. You know, what's yeah. going on? We're not, we're not ready. I mean, we are, <laughs> but I think that the, the power systems such as they are, are not ready to get rid of white men running the show. I mean, I think it's that simple. And I think we're taught, you know, Mm. we're still taught that women who are assertive are bitchy. You know, we're taught that, you know, people who aren't white, who speak up for their, you know, for their rights are uppity, you know, like this, these, these themes are still absolutely pervasive in, Mm. you know, everything in, in the real world and in the media. I mean, this is one of the jobs that I think that, you know, media could do a better job at is actually showing us people who are not white men being smart and competent and not scary, you know, people, this is what I, one of the things I think Ted Lasso actually did do was show, you know, mediocre white men that it's okay to have feelings and it's okay to be afraid and it's okay to do all these things. And, and as subversive as it is, I think that that is, that might be what paves the way to social change because change isn't going to happen as long as the people in power are holding up their defenses as much as is humanly possible. And so until those defenses get down one way or another, you know, either they get bombed down, they get me too dragged out of, you know, out of business or they get shown a better example. And I think, you know, ultimately all those things have to work together. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I put on Twitter this morning, I will never forgive the people who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton. I just, Mm. you know, and I say that, oh, I thought my Bernie Sanders doll was right near me, but it's not, but it's like, you know, I loved him too. Next. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think um, you know. I guess one of the one of the, the kind of fundamental uh, problems that exists both in film and TV and and in politics and every other industry is it, it's all well and good ticking a box by representing different ethnicities and different sexualities and and mm-hmm. uh, on screen. But really, the issue here is opportunity. It's 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 removing those barriers to entry so Absolutely. that people with different voices can actually tell their stories. Well, right, and that's the like, people say, I, you know, I'm diverse. This actually, this is one of the things, you know, one of the things CrossFit did, just because this is, we talked about this earlier, mm. is that they built, you know, they got called out for having absolutely no diversity whatsoever. Like it was the least inclusive place on the planet probably. And so they built a DEI council, a diversity, equity, and inclusion council. 
and they found tokens for every single checkbox, right? And so they have, then they had demographic diversity, but no diversity of thought, backgrounds, needs, or opportunities, right? And so it accomplished absolutely nothing. And I think that that's one of the things that you see. And, you know, you see it some in like film and TV that's produced by white people with token, you know, characters of color or, you know, adaptive actors or whatever. Mm. But then you see something like Insecure, right? On HBO Max, which if you haven't seen it yet, just go ahead and cancel all your plans for like five days and do it from start to finish. But it was written by Issa Rae, who is just unapologetically here to tell black stories from a black perspective told for black people, you know, about black neighborhoods. And it is just profoundly different than anything else you would see. And it's, it is, it's things like that. It's about saying, not saying, hey, I will invite you to my table. It's about saying, hey, do you need a table? Like, do you, do you need your own, you know, you need a table, what do you need? You need a chef, you need a menu, what do you need? And that that's, mm. that's happening more now. Yeah, um, that was rambling. Mm. But I think it is, it is really important that we don't just say, look, I cast black people as the sidekick and consider that diversity, because it's not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, also the, the problem of, even casting non-white, non-male, non-straight people uh, and uh, in in lead roles for you know non-white, non-male, non-straight characters, if they're still if it's still a character that's created by and, and, and written by a straight white male, you're you're not removing that issue of it still being through that gaze. So, you know? so this is this is I think the really really interesting. So we don't talk. Nobody talks enough about casting directors, right? Like. Casting directors are hugely important because you can get a script that describes somebody as devastatingly handsome, right? Okay, so just say, let's just say devastatingly handsome is the descriptor. If the casting director's idea of devastatingly handsome is simply six foot two, blonde hair and blue eyes, they are gonna be looking at it through that lens, right? Mm. So what if the casting director's idea of devastatingly handsome is five foot two, you know, brown balding with a beer belly. Like, yeah, like th there are people, you know, so, so what does that mean? And what if it's not even the casting director's opinion of devastatingly handsome that matters, but the mm. character who has to be devastatingly attracted to that person that matters. And so I, I, I've long had a fantasy of writing either a novel or a screenplay that includes all of these descriptors about characters, but has nothing physical. You know, like mm. what if like my husband lied in bed, was lying in bed and saw Frances McDormand come on the screen in overalls and like probably unshowered for three days and said, oh, my God, she's so cute. Right. But if you saw like super cute and attractive middle aged woman written as a descriptor, how many people would picture Frances McDormand in old overalls unshowered with her hair standing up? Mm. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so there's the standardization that takes place when we cast people based on like socially expected descriptors of of sexiness or scary like i guarantee you i scare more people as this sort of you know like 50 some year old rage in my eyes woman than than you would think so why why can't that be cast as scary instead of somebody who's who's not white right mm -hmm. like so casting directors play this incredibly important part in shaping the sort of social psyche of how we perceive each other and nobody ever talks about it but mm. if you go back and look at how they've cast bad guys or 
trans characters or whatever. Like, how do these characters get cast that form the narrative of how we perceive each other? It's really, it's actually really important. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it, it, it kind of ties in with what we were saying before as well. You know, this, this isn't just about putting diversity on screen. It's about mm -hmm. the below the line talent. It's about all the people uh, involved in the decision-making and the creative process that you, that you don't see. You know, yeah. if they're all white or, or, or as you were saying, you know, the casting director has a very uh, non-diverse view of, of what good and bad is, then, you know. And, and is it safe for all the people in the room to stand up and say, yo, that is a bullshit stereotype or no, that is, you know, it's like the, there has to be safety at every level of an organization for people to be at the table saying, no, you yeah. can't say that, you can't do that. Or what about this? Or and if there's not that diversity of voices, it's not as simple as, you know, just the director or just the producer. It's at every level. You have to have a diversity of ideas, backgrounds, and opportunities, not just skin color and checkboxes, and be willing to be challenged. And if you're not, it's just it's just show, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. But let's move on to the next question. Uh, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park the third one till the end, give you a bit more time to mile I'm racking my brain for this <laughs> I'm giving you I'm giving you as much time as possible here. Uh, but um, what is your most nostalgic film? Oh, are you gonna get mad if I say Paper Moon again? I, <laughs> Not at all. I mean, I I really so I'm super attached to Paper Moon for sure because I've loved it since I was a little kid. There's other films like as silly as it sounds, Sound of Music and The Wizard of Oz were just the background of my childhood, and mm. I will never not watch them if I stumble across them. <laughs> I just, I can't ever turn them off. I love Philadelphia Story was a mm. favorite of mine when I was a kid. Anything with Catherine Hepburn in it. And sadly, it's funny, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, though I have to get past the incredibly racist and problematic Mickey Rourke character. Um, <laughs> have you seen Breakfast at Tiffany's? I have, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I try to remind myself that you can't necessarily judge the past by the standards of the present even though you can learn from them and promise to never repeat them but that one is just so bad that i need to find a way to edit him out of that film so i can watch it yeah yeah there's there's some films that just haven't aged well but but still stick with you like like for me i remember watching greece on vhs just on oh, repeat yeah. um but now i mean i know that's not aged well but it just it brings back just good feelings for me I can't yeah. not watch it. I don't it, think I would know? ever not watch that either. If I stumbled across it, I would I would totally watch it. And I think that that's, you know, we, ha we have to be really careful to not just erase the past and pretend it didn't mm. happen. And so I think, you know, there, there are films and TV shows and songs and whatever that are that are absolutely problematic based on how we understand the world now. And they were problematic at the time. We just didn't necessarily have language or space or awareness of it. And so I think that we have to allow those to still exist because in that discomfort, in that realization are the conversations that we need to have to make sure we don't make those mistakes in the future. And so like, I don't, you know, th those, those are allowed in my house. You know, we, we talk about them. And when I, when I ran across them with my kid, we just talked about why they're problematic and we don't do that anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I think film serves as um, a really important documentation of the national conscience particularly absolutely. hollywood and absolutely i think if you start if you start rewriting that narrative and that history then you really lose something no i mean think like we we uh, whatever understanding and obviously slanted understanding we have of history now is because of the documents that were left 
from that time that we were able to review. So, so, you know, we don't get to erase or cancel or pretend that we didn't make these mistakes that we made in our media because we did. Um, and they absolutely mm. represent how mainstream the American power structure or British, whatever, who made the movies were at the time. So we don't, we don't get to erase those and pretend that didn't happen, you know, because it did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what is your guilty pleasure? Or guilty pleasures, I'd say. In terms of media, I assume? <laughs> Film and TV? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, so, let's, let's keep it a little bit clean. <laughs> you know, this is, this is one of those that comes up every Christmas, and you've probably seen me. Um, I, I love Love Actually. Love that film. And I, I hear all of the, I hear all the problems. I see all the problems. I still absolutely love that film. That is probably my yeah. guiltiest pleasure. I also, I, I rarely agree I, with any of those takedown pieces for it, but you know, whatever. I, I think I'm just oblivious to any takedown pieces for Love Actually because I, I love it so much. I'm completely with you on this. Yeah. I think that that opening segment in the airport, in the airport arrival thing ought to be a PSA that everybody is just forced to watch like literally every day. Like open your eyes, look around. Love is actually everywhere. Yeah, I it, it, it felt like such... Um, it felt like such a labor of love from Richard Curtis as well. Like it's just something he really wanted to make. And I also think, you know, it's, it doesn't get a lot of credit because it's a rom-com and rom-coms typically have a bit of a stigma attached, but Richard Curtis with Love Actually basically defined the, the ensemble film. You know, these, these things were not done very well before Love Actually. And then as soon as like post 2003, they're cropping up all over the place. No, I, I, I completely agree. And I will say like rom-coms is by far my least favorite genre. Like <laughs> I will generally speaking, it's hard to get me to watch a rom-com, but I love, mm. I love that movie. And I mm-hmm. always will. So. What, what's your, what's your fan, uh, your, your feelings generally over kind of the Richard Curtis kind of nineties British kind of comedy, the, the Hugh Grant sort of led films, basically. <laughs> Hugh Grant led films. Uh, well, I'm generally speaking sick of Hugh Grant. I think he's about as two-dimensional as it gets. Though utterly adorable, and I would totally give him a ride for a night and not regret it. But, yeah, they're fine. I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather watch With Nail and I 26 times than, you know, than most of the things that Hugh Grant did. Seems fair. They're fine. I think, it's, but I, I think that, I, I think that sort of simple, easy to consume, happy media is a really important thing. I think if you're having a stressful life and a shitty day and you're on the verge of nuclear war yet again, it's fine. <laughs> it's not my happy place, but it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, you know, certainly the 2020s are uh, going to be a breeding ground for some real escapist gems um, from Hollywood because, I mean, for sure. it's, it's been a hell of a decade, right? We've had pandemic That's... and now we've got war. It's terrible. <laughs> It's so bad. I'm just glad I have two episodes of Righteous Gemstones to catch up on tonight. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but it, it, you know, it's interesting, even that, which I look forward to hearing your take on it after you see it, but it's about, you know, this mega church, basically, you know, mega church scam artist people and their lives just sort of falling apart. And I think you're seeing a lot of accountability packaged in accessible ways. And I think that that's good. I'm here for accountability. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like something I'd very much enjoy as well. So I need you to would. Give that watch. John Goodman run, leads the cast, but like the whole cast is just ridiculous. It's so good. So, mm. 
interesting. That is on my watch list. But yeah. I can I can procrastinate this no more. No and I have to go back to the question. Uh, which film or TV character do you most relate to? So it's, it is, it is, and it always has been, I can't believe I struggled with this, Addie in um, Paper Moon. She's just this, this little kid who's constantly calling people out on how, the fact, on how they're full of shit. And she feels alone in the world and kind of desperate and fighty and doesn't understand why everybody doesn't see that these people are full of shit. And so it's always been her. That, that, that now sounds you have to very watch that much movie. like you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I have to. Yeah. I, I, will, I will absolutely seek it out. Yes. Paper Moon is, is going to be on my priority watch list now. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? Um, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't seen it yet. It sounds like something that would be right up my street. Yeah. It's, it, it's pretty it wonderful. Amazing little, um, it's not really, amazing supporting role with Madeline Kahn. Just so, yeah, it's so good. Amazing. Well, You've given me some some great answers and actually a lot of things I am yet to see and catch up on, mainly because uh, I don't think I'm as dedicated to streaming services as, as, as you have been the last couple of years, <laughs> so I need to get on that. But, uh, yeah, um, I am far been... too dedicated to them. <laughs> Joe, I am, I am looking forward to HBO Max though. It, mainly it's, it's because of my love of Last Week Tonight, uh, which has now disappeared from UK TV, and I'm going to have to get HBO Max to watch it. I think oh, I think weird. because they're launching in the UK, yeah. Oh. So I've, I've, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's um the whole. Yeah. I, I will let you go with the sort of one other thing that I that I have just truly loved is the the rebirth of the limited series, which was called a mini series when I was a kid. So things like Station mm. Eleven, which I think is also HBO Max, tell, taking novels or just any story and saying, "Here, we're going to give you ten episodes. That's it." And it's just wonderful because it allows people to dive into a story without having to commit to, you know, a 10-year relationship and dragging it out and jumping sharks. So, okay. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you're going to have well, fun. I cannot I'm wait. Excited. And, oh, Apple TV as well. Ted Lasso is on um, Apple TV, right? Yeah. Yes. Have you not seen Ted Lasso? Leon. I, I haven't. I I know. I need to get Apple TV. Uh, you do. I, I, I told you, I'm really, I'm really blind. Yeah. It, Ted Lasso is really amazing. And you'll, you'll understand what I... I, I think it it is the force for change that we need because it tells mediocre white guys it's okay to be afraid and have feelings and let things change. So it's a yeah. good it's good. Which sounds like it, yeah. it sounds like exactly what the world needs right now. It um, is. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me thank on the you. show. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you again. And I'm gonna have to think of a reason to get you back uh, because it's, I was just well that great. or you can just come to Seattle. <laughs> Well, that it would be an expensive podcast recording, but uh, I, I think I, I don't a need good to be invited more than once. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? Awesome. Your, I, I, before we go, I've got to just tell this anecdote. When I was staying at yours, your house is incredible, by the way, and I just yeah. remember it being, you know, on sort of a bit on the hill. You can see Mount Rainier. It's mm -hmm. it's it's in a, a gorgeous location, and I remember I I, I got a bus into downtown Seattle and completely forgot to remember where I got on the bus initially. I remember and that, yeah. A few hours, I call you from the supermarket. I don't know where I was. The um, Safeway at Othello and... Station, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I call you up and I'm lost. I haven't got a clue. And you rescued me from that from that store. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have few memories uh, from, from, from three months in America, but that's one that really sticks with me. That's so funny. Yeah, I actually think of you whenever yeah. I drive by that Safeway. So that's permanently like <laughs> it's my little sort of Liam check spot. So 
It was so great to talk Amazing. to you again. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And um, for anyone that's listened to this and wants to connect with you, um, how can they? You know, honestly, the, the easiest way to get me is actually Instagram, which is bizarre. But the gym's Instagram is Rocket Community Fitness um, on Instagram. So, and I'm, that's the place that it's easiest to find me. But it's also super easy to just Google my name and all sorts of things turn up, including my ignominious um, interactions with, with CrossFit. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, okay. Well, that's been great, Alyssa. Uh, thanks again, and uh, we will speak soon. I'll make sure of it. Awesome. That's it for this episode of the Friday Film Club. I do hope you enjoyed it. And of course, you can listen back to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And remember as well to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at the Fry Film Club. We will, of course, post links to all of our guest info in the show notes. So look out for that as well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.